0: I want to invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1. We're in a series called Look Up, and uh, uh, the, the wristband that you have an opportunity to pick up and wear or do whatever you want with it. It, it, it's designed to to stay with us and remind us to look up. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, where we've kind of taken the uh, the theme from, it says this, it says, since you've been raised with Christ, because because of who you are, because of your faith and your trust in Jesus, because of that, you need to look up, set your your heart and your mind on the things above. In other words, no matter what's going on in my life, where am I find myself, I, I want to look up to who Jesus is and what he's done for us, because he's going to be right there with us and he's going to help us. And last week as we gathered together, I tried to get us to physically look up to God's creation. So I I showed you a couple of pictures. I showed you a picture of the the Milky Way in a a spiral galaxy. And we looked at um, Glacier National Park. We looked at some other things to, to remind ourselves that because of who Jesus is, because he is our creator, because he is our sustainer in life that we can look up to him and we can trust him for who he is and what he's done for us. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 about Jesus, he, Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 9, it says this, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So what Paul is simply writing to the people of Colossae and reminding them about is, listen, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. He is the Messiah. He's the one who's come to offer himself as a sacrifice for his sins. And what we can do is we can absolutely put our faith and trust in him and look up to him any and that's what he's reminding these people and is reminding us in our text this morning. So what I want to do is I want to begin this morning and I want to show you one last slide. Actually, this is supposed to come at the end of last week, but because I got way too many notes and I was just all over the place, I wanted to bring it back this week. And and this is what this is. This is an Ichnumen wasp. All right. And this wasp has two nasty habits. First thing it does is it stings it stings people and that doesn't feel good. But the other thing that it does is, is the mama wasp will find a caterpillar or will find an insect, it will find something that the mama wasp will go and then it will grab that caterpillar insect and then inject little eggs inside the, the abdomen of a caterpillar over another insect. And obviously, as those eggs are in there, and as the eggs grow, and as they begin to expand, they begin to eat up the caterpillar or the other insect, and basically take its life. And you're sitting there going, wow, that's that's a great story right before lunch. <laughs> that, that, that That's really appealing. But listen, that this wasp is important theologically and historically, as one man said. Charles Darwin the creator of evolution and the natural selection, Charles Darwin looked at this wasp, looked at what this wasp did, and drew a conclusion about life and also about his understanding of the nature and the character of God. This wasp was pivotal in his understanding of natural selection. And let me put the quote up here. This is what he said, Charles Darwin, natural selection, evolution. He said this, I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do, and as I should wish to do, evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to be too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created this Ichnomenidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars or that a cat should play with a mice. In other words, he said, listen, I can't look at this and and come to the conclusion that something is good. This is wrong. There's something bad about what's happening here. And I can't draw the conclusion that somehow God created this. If God is such a good and wonderful and loving and caring God, what's the deal between the wasp and these caterpillars? What's going on here? If Jesus is the Lord of creation, as we affirmed last Sunday... What's the deal between the caterpillar and the wasp and all of the stuff and misery that we see going on around us? And I would imagine maybe some of us have thought the same thing. Yeah, I get it. What's the big deal? What do we look around and see in the city of St. Louis? Seven shootings in a matter of five hours. Why do we look around and see that? What do we look around and see all the, the yuckiness and the messiness? And why do I look at my own life and sometimes see the yuckiness and the mess of my own life, the way that I treat other people, some people close to me? Why why is there this thing going on inside of us? And and I think we would probably agree with Dharma we'd look around and we'd see so much reason or so much misery in the world. We would agree that there's a brokenness of life, there's a brokenness in the world in which you and I live in. There is brokenness in the world. And there is a sense of loss. There's a sense of pain and suffering that comes with this. And there is a reason for the brokenness. And what we're going to see in our text this morning, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul's going to say, listen, there is a reason for that. There's a reason for the death. There's a reason for destruction. There's a reason for this cycle of pain and suffering that we see. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, notice what Paul writes. I'm going to put it on the screen. He says this, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. Our world is marred. Our world is in this cycle of pain and suffering because of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve said, listen, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to listen to what God says. We're not going to listen to the instructions. that We're going to go off and we're going to do whatever we want. We're going to rebel against God. We're going to partake of the fruit. And from that particular moment in time, we have been in a state of alienation. We have been an enemy of God. We have been in absolute rebellion against God. We don't want anyone. We don't want God telling us how we can live our lives. We're alienated. We're enemies of God because of our evil behavior. It means this. I'm at war with God. I'm at war with God in my heart of hearts. I'm at war with God. The prophet Isaiah said this. A great description probably describes me, probably describes you. Isaiah 59 says this. But your iniquities, your sin, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. That's what sin does. It it separates us from God, and it separates us from people and family and friends. That's what sin does. It ruptures and breaks relationships, and we need someone else to come alongside and say, you know what? There's a different way for you to live because I've done something for you. Paul writing almost in a parallel book to the book of Colossians in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Notice how Paul describes this separation. He says this, remember, this is before you were in Christ, before you became a Christian, before I uh, brought Jesus into my life, he says this, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Yes, you were not a Jewish person, so you were separate from the covenant. You were separated from all of that stuff, but still you were separate with, from God and you were without hope in the world because of your sin, because of all of the things that were going on in your life. You were an enemy of God, Colossians chapter 1, and you were alienated from him. You believe that about yourself before Christ? Somebody, I'm, I'm driving in the office on Highway 70, and I could see the cars, the police cars lined up. Um, and, and you know what they're doing, they're catching speeders. And they had a couple of them here, then they had a couple of them uh, further up. And I'm like, okay, what they're doing is people are driving, and they're getting past the first two things, and they're clean, and then they're going to go on and catch them a little later. So I come through, get almost to, um, to the church, and, and I'm in the far right hand lane, and I hear, woo I hear the sirens going off. I look in my rearview, and I see lights. Now, I'm not speeding, all right? Don't, don't think that. And I look in the far left-hand lane, and there's a cop car chasing another car. And then here comes three more cop cars chasing them down. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, they're weaving in and out of traffic. I'm thinking, here's somebody who's made a conscious decision to run from the police rather than pull over, stop. And give them the information. There's this sense of rebellion against authority. And you and I are not any different. We are in rebellion against God. We are alienated from him. We are enemies of him because of this thing called sin that lies deep within us. I have my own sin nature. And then there's this this being, this evil being called Satan. He's called the prince of the power of the air. There's this realm of darkness. There's this place of darkness in which we live that's out there. So there's my own sin nature. There's this realm of darkness of Satan. And all of that comes upon us to get us to rebel and do what we think is best as opposed to submitting our lives to God. And because of that, the Bible says this, the entire world, world is in a cycle of decay and death, and destruction. That's why the wasp does what it does. Because sin has so devastated not just our own life, but the whole created order of things. That's what Paul is saying, that we are enemies of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Notice what it says about creation, about the created order. It says this, for the creation was subjected to frustration. Death and decay, frustration, are in the created order. Why? Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Because of our sin, God brought the curse upon the earth. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. What Paul is simply saying is, listen, the created order has been so affected by the curse that even creation is groaning and longing for the day that it will be released from this curse of death and destruction. We read it all the time in the news about how our creation is slowly going downhill, death. Destruction, decay, it's a part of the curse. And God's going to do something about that. And so what Paul is writing to the people of Colossae, and he's telling them this. Listen, what you need to understand, that the Jesus is in the very image of God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. And he entered into this broken world in his humanity. He came into this broken world in order to bring about something called reconciliation. He's come to reconcile us to a holy God so that you and I might become part of the body of Christ. We might become part of the church and we might be a part of a new community. We are a new community with Jesus as our Savior. And that's why it's so incredibly wonderful to come and sing with you. and To lift our voices and praise to who God is. is a community of faith. So I've given you the background of where we're at. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Let me read our text. By the way, remember, this is the word of the Lord. Paul writing to the people of Colossae. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's writing for 1,300 miles away. He's writing this letter to them. And he's saying, okay, here, let me focus on Jesus. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have supremacy. I just got to stop and just say, is Jesus displaying his supremacy in your life and my life? He should be. That's what this is about. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. For the things earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Wow. All the yuckiness the stuff, the crud in my life just this past week? I've been forgiven because of who Jesus is and what he's done in reconciling me to God? Man, you should be grateful for who Jesus is and cleansing us. He says this in verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard And it's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, has become a servant. So let me pray and let us just jump into this. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the beauty of Jesus coming to this earth, living on this earth and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. Father, I ask that you would simply open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things from your word this morning. Father, I ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what I want to do is this. I believe that this text is going to remind us that God is forming a new new creation. He's called the church, the body of Christ. Jesus is the Savior. He's the ultimate one, and we're to submit our lives. And what he's going to do is he's going to show us, he's going to show us what reconciliation looks like. We're going to look at that. And then because of reconciliation, you and I have a responsibility. So that's the two broad categories. That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this idea of reconciliation and this idea of responsibility. So look at what Jesus is doing in this idea of reconciling relationships. In verse 18, notice what it says. It says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, Paul could use any number of metaphors if you want to describe church life. You could have said, "Hey, listen, we are the household. We're God's household. We're a flock. We're a building. We're a kingdom." He could use any kind of metaphor, but notice what he uses. He says, "You're a, you're a body. Every one of you put your faith and your trust in Jesus. We're a part of, of, of that body." And as we meet and as we gather together and as we encourage and build up each other, we recognize that we are all needed in the body of Christ. We need you. We need you. We, need, well, we are all needed in the body of Christ because you provide something that I cannot provide for. And hopefully I can provide something that you cannot provide for. We all work together. So he calls us the body of Christ. But he also what else he calls us. He says we're the, we're the church. You know what church means? It means ecclesy. It means called out ones. It means you've been called out of the domain of darkness. You've been called out of being alienated and separated. From, you've been called out of that, and you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and you are now part of the body of Christ, which is the church. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church, because I'm going to build my church. I am going to build my church with the people in the body of Christ." So that they would do two things. Number one, they would worship Jesus. And number two, they would tell other people about Jesus. That's what you and I have been called to do in the church. To worship Jesus and to tell other people about Jesus. And in verse 18, it calls Jesus the, he's the head of the church. In other words, what Jesus is, is this. It's not just that he's a boss. He's not at the top of the rung of the ladder. What the Bible says about Jesus is this, that he's the source of life for you. He's a source of life for us as I, as I give myself to him and as I submit to him and I follow him and I trust him and he guides and directs me. He's a source of life for the church. I am this source of life for the church for the body of Christ. If you go back and look at chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, that we as the body of Christ, as I and and you as a part of the body of Christ, as members of the body of Christ, as we look up to Jesus as the head, and as we minister and serve to each other in the body of Christ, as members of the body of Christ, the the Bible says this, that we will grow spiritually. In other words, I need to be looking up, you need to be looking up, and we need to be looking to each other how we can build up and help each other in the body of Christ so that Jesus would be honored and glorified in all that we say or do, so that Jesus would have supremacy in all that we would say or do. Listen, there's no beginning of the church without Jesus. There's no, there's no life in the church ultimately without the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the defining moment in the life of Jesus and the body of Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Notice what Paul writes about the importance and the significance of the resurrection. He says this, and through the spirit of holiness, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is the affirmation. It is the the um, uh, uh, stamping of approval on who God is and who Jesus is as our Messiah. He is ultimately He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. And He's the one that we are to give our lives through. And as I look up, as you and I look up, as we submit our lives to Him, as we give our lives to Him, as He continues to reconcile us to Himself and to other people, what He does is He is forming this wonderful thing called the body of Christ in the church. So what God is doing through the person of Jesus is he's reconciling us back to himself through Jesus. And what I want to do is this. Is, is I want to use three key words in here. I kind of summarize this in three key words. What does reconciliation look like? What does Jesus being the Savior of the world, what does that look like for you and I in this new community? Three words. Number one is going to be resurrection. The second word will be incarnation. The third word is going to be crucifixion. So let's just look at those three words that we're going to pull out from this text. First word is resurrection. Paul uses the word reconcile in verse 20 and reconcile to verse 22. And what he does is he reminds us of something. We're broken people. You know, sometimes I get mad at my wife. Sometimes she gets mad at me. Sometimes I used to get mad at my kids. Sometimes they would get mad at me. Sometimes you'd get mad at your friend. And there is this, this brokenness in life. There's this alienation in life. There's this separation in life. We've all known it. We've all felt it. We've all experienced it, right? We all know what that looks like. And it doesn't feel good. And we know when that, when that relationship is broken, we need to go back and we need to, we need to do something about it. We need to reconcile relationships with each other. Nobody wants to walk around with this kind of quiet sense of what's going on. Many years ago, there was a movie uh, that was made. It was called The Straight Story. It's an interesting movie. It's based upon a true life story of a 73-year-old guy by the name of Alvin Straight. And what he does is he travels. You'll probably remember this. He travels from um, Iowa, from Lawrence, Iowa, 370 miles to Mount Zion, Wisconsin. And he does it in a 1966 John Deere tractor. Now, what's happened is he can't see. He's lost his license. His body's breaking down. He has arthritis. But what he does is he gets on this tractor and he begins to travel hundreds of miles through the picturesque uh, s- uh, scenery of, of these beautiful areas because he has one goal in mind and that's it. He wants to go and he wants to visit his brother. He hasn't seen his brother in a number of years. And what he wants to do is he wants to reconcile his relationship back with his brother. So what he's going to do, he's going to travel by means of a 1966 John Deere tractor. His brother has had a stroke. His brother is ailing, and he does not want him to die knowing that they are estranged in this relationship. He wants to go back and reconcile the relationship with his brother. God sends Jesus to this earth so that you and I might be reconciled in a relationship with him. He doesn't want us to be alienated with him from him. He does not want us to be enemies of him. He wants us to know beyond a shadow of doubt that we can be reconciled to a holy God. And that comes through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled to God. Do you see the beauty of the reconciliation? Do you see the beauty in Jesus? Maybe a word picture. Imagine, I have a son. See somewhere, his name's Drew. Imagine Drew comes to me one day and he says, "Dad, I'm done. Uh, you, you, mom, you guys are just too old. Um, give me all my stuff. Give me, all, give me all the stuff." Well, I'm like, "Well, here it is. It's all in the box. That's all we got. I'm sorry about that. We ain't got a whole lot, but you can take it. And you can go." He says, "By the way, I'm leaving. I'm going." And he goes off, and he just goes off for a year or two, and he just destroys his life. does it live by the values that we've given to him. Doesn't live by the things that we've instructed him. He says, listen, I'm just going to go. I want to do it by myself. After about two years, his life is destroyed. I don't know what to do. You know what I'll do? I'll go back home. And I'll say, dad, listen, I don't want anything from you. I just want to, I just want to work. You're not to give me anything. And so he comes home. And I look up one day. And, and a quarter of a mile down the road, I see, my, I see my son coming back. How do I respond? I run to him. I run to him, and I throw my arms around him, and I say, Son, welcome home. If you don't know, it, that's the story of the prodigal son. And it's in the Bible. And, and, and we've given that picture because it shows us of the very heart and the very nature of God who wants to reconcile us to Himself through the unique person of Jesus. And what he does is he comes and and, and he wraps his arms around us. And he wants us to love us and to care for us. Verse 18 says this, Jesus is the firstborn from what? From among the dead. The dead. Jesus died a brutal and cruel death. Verse 22 says this, but now he has reconciled you by what? By Christ's physical body through death. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first time in human history that anyone broke out of that cycle of death and destruction and decay. Now, we know that some people were raised back to death, Lazarus. We know that. But they died again. Jesus came back to life reminding us that one day there is going to be a future resurrection for all of us and that because of the resurrection, I will one day have eternal life because I've been reconciled to a holy God and I put my faith and my trust in Jesus that resurrection guarantees that when I die, I'm going to live forever and ever with Jesus. Jesus' resurrection guarantees my future. John chapter 14, it says this, Because I live, you will also live. Isn't that beautiful? That We will all live one day reconciled to a holy God because of who He is and what He's done. So that was the first word, resurrection. Second word is this. It's in verse 19. It has the idea of incarnation. That's what Christmas is all about, incarnation. Verse 19 says this, For God was pleased to have all of the fullness dwell in him. So what does that mean? That the full nature of who God is, God in all of his fullness, dwelt in the unique person of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. The, the, the power of God, the, the, the holiness of God, the, the perfection of God, the beauty of God, dwelt in the unique person of Jesus Christ. And then he leaves the unity of being in glory with, with heaven. Jesus leaves that glory in the book of Hebrews that says that God had prepared a body for him, a body that would come and live and then ultimately offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross for our sin. That's what we have in Jesus. Jesus comes to live among us and to give himself to us. And what Paul is simply affirming here is that all of the fullness in Jesus dwelt upon this earth. Imagine that. Imagine seeing God in the person of Jesus. Imagine you're in the boat with the disciples. And the weather is getting bad and Jesus is sleeping and you're starting to get a little bit nervous because you're a fisherman. You've been down this way. And you know the threshold of when... The pain and suffering kicks in, and when, ah, this is not going to be good. And you finally you wake Jesus up, and he speaks and calms the storm. Not just that the storm stops, but, but the, 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 the water is calm. You know, in a storm, the water after it does this, but not with Jesus. And imagine being in that situation and seeing Jesus doing these mighty and powerful miracles. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. Speaking of the incarnation, the Word, Jesus being in flesh, and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Read back to the Gospels. Do you ever get weary, maybe tired, not depressed, but maybe just not sure of life? Go back and read the Gospels and read of the beauty of Jesus, the compassion that he had, the power that he had, the care that he had, the glory that he had. All of that is described in the Gospels, and we have this great privilege of of learning about him because this God comes to earth to remove us from being alienated and separated from him. So most of us from my age, you probably know of a musical group by the name of U2. Bono was the lead singer. Well, one year he had returned from Dublin and he attended a Christmas Eve service. And at some point in the middle of that service, Bono grasped the truth of the heart of the Christmas story, that in Jesus, God became a human being. And with tears streaming down his face, this is what he said. This is his recollection. The idea that God if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw, a child, I just thought, wow, just the poetry. I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this. Love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. That's the incarnation. That's the idea that God would come and live and dwell upon this earth for you and I. Let me ask you, so why is that so important for us to embrace? What's the big deal? What does it matter? I think it does matter for a couple of reasons. In order for you and I to renew our lives and for God to renew all of creation, God didn't just push a button. He didn't wave a magic wand. He didn't say a magic word. That's not the way love works. Love does what? Love shows up. Love stands at the doorstep. Love does the hard stuff of life. In a marriage relationship with raising children in the body of Christ, love simply shows up and does the hard work. And that's what God did. He showed up. And he did something about it. And he did something powerful about it. And if this God who loved us so much, who came to display the full measure of glory and through showed up, how much more does he love and care for you and I? If God can do that for other people, why can't he do that for you and I? In spite of our alienation, in spite of our rebellion, God comes and says, will you, will you trust me with your very life? Listen, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what difficulties and challenges are there. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. He wants you to simply trust him wherever you would find him. That's the incarnation that he comes so we looked at incarnation, we looked at resurrection. The last thing I want to look at is this. Crucifixion. Look at verse 19 and 20. Crucifixion. We're talking about reconciliation. We're reconciled through the resurrection. We're reconciled through the incarnation and we're reconciled through the incarnation on uh, the crucifixion. Look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him what? To reconcile to himself all things. Notice what he says. Whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How does your reconciliation come? How does my reconciliation come? It comes like this. Through a brutal death of Jesus on the cross. God comes to the earth with the express purpose of going to a cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. Think, think the summary of this text that Paul is writing to these people. Think through the summary of verses 15 through through 20. Let me just remind it to you. Notice what it says. It says, first of all, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the firstborn. He's the exalted one. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of the whole universe. He has supremacy in all things. He's come to reconcile us back to a holy relationship to God. He's come to what bring us peace. And how does all of that happen? Through blood. A cross. God dies on the cross for my sin and for your sin. Blood is what it, it, it's, listen, it's not a little boo boo. It's not a little mark. It's, it's it's, the, it's, it's, it's blood being poured out, crowns being forced upon his head, thorns and, and blood flowing. That the cross is a picture of what? Humility and mocking and people spitting on him. God. And that's what he's done in the crucifixion so that you and I might be reconciled to a holy God and brought into this wonderful, beautiful picture of what? The new community. Do you see people around you as being part of the new community, beautiful body of Christ, members of each other, that we love each other, that we care for each other, that we support each other? So you notice I've got a couple of friends here. And... Uh, We've met on Thursday mornings for for years, and a lot of them have been a part of that. And we meet almost every Thursday morning. They're some of my closest friends. And they're part of the family of God. They're part of the body of Christ. I say that to remind us we all need that. Every one of us needs that. We need to be in in a close connection with others to help us to grow and to mature. That means about, about being part of the body of Christ, that we come into a sacred place here. The church. One theologian said this. He says about this text, Paul does not exult in some heavenly abstraction. The poem's second strophe, what he's saying about the second line, the second major line of this uh, of this tech text, the, the poem's second strophe brings about the cosmic, brings Christ's cosmic reality down to earth where blood flows from a body sprung on a cross. It brings it down to the reality that God comes and suffers for us. N.T. Wright said this, The death of an obscure Jew, Jesus, on a seemingly God-forsaken hill in the backwater of the Roman Empire attracted no notice from the historians of the era, but it was the event that reconciles heaven and earth to us. Isn't that awesome? Listen, I can't be estranged from you. You can't be estranged from me. We can't. Because the Bible says that he's reconciled us and he wants us to bridge the gap and he wants us to be peacemakers. That's what he's come to do, to break down the peace. And by the way, verse 20 says this, God is going to reconcile all things, whether in heaven and earth, by making peace through his blood on the cross. When he says all things, he's talking about all things. He's talking about the created order. He's talking about this creation that we see all around us that's crying out, right? Give up. I want, I want to be reconciled. The frustration of the created order. And, and that's what's going to happen one day in the future. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 25. Notice how creation has changed. So remember I gave you the wasp and the caterpillar? Notice how creation has changed in the future. The wolf We'll live with a lamb and the shepherd and the leopard will lie down with a goat and the lion will eat straw like an ox. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day in the future. This is not fancy poetry. One day in the future, this created order is going to be reconciled. And it's going to be Beautiful. And that's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to worship, and the beauty of that, because we've been reconciled to a holy God. Isn't that awesome? Revelation 21, hear the word for some of you. God will be with them, and he will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no mourning or crying or pain. I can't wait for that day. No more death, no mourning, no crying or pain. Jesus conquered it all by going to the, to the cross and the resurrection. Okay, so I'm basically done, but I want to draw this to a conclusion. Three things for us to think about, three things from this text for us to consider from verse 23. How do we look up, how do we incorporate this into our lives? What is our responsibility? Look at verse 23. It says this, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Three applications for us. Number one, persevere. Don't give up. No matter what you're going through right now, think about who Jesus is and what he's done for you and persevere in your faith. In, In chapter one, verse two, Paul says, to the faithful brothers... Go back and read this and you'll see all of these faithful people, Timothy and Onesimuth and, and Epaphras, all of these faithful people who have been a part of what? Who've been a part of the body of Christ. And they've been a part of, of, of serving and building up and helping each other in the faith. Don't give up. The idea of being established and firm means this, that Jesus is the foundation. He's the cornerstone of your life. And I'm going to continue to build upon that cornerstone day in and day out. My family going to build that. I'm going to build that for my children. That is the foundation of which I'm going to live my life, firm and established. And the idea of being moved, it has the idea of sitting in a chair. I'm rock solid because I'm, I'm sitting in a chair. Because who Jesus is and what he's done for me, what he's secured. I, I persevere in your faith is what our responsibility is to do. Second thing is just re- respond to the hope of the gospel. Listen, if you're not in Christ, if, if you've not trusted Jesus with your life, today's a great day to do that. Say, Jesus, I, I want to trust you for my life. I want to put my faith, my confidence, and I want to put my trust in you. And I want to do that. And I want to live my life by the hope of the gospel. By the way, the gospel is not a word. It means good news, but it's, it's, it's a person. Life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, all of who he is. Respond to the gospel. And you and I need to continue to respond to the gospel every day. Live out the gospel every day. So we persevere, we respond. And number three is this. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it. The ecclesia, of the church has been called out to honor, glorify, worship Jesus. And we've been also been given the task, the responsibility to tell others about Jesus, proclaim the gospel. That's how they heard. We think that a papyrus showed up. Paul didn't go there. Papyrus showed up in Colossae. By the way, let me tell you about this guy by the name of Jesus. Can I tell you about this guy by the name of Jesus and how he's reconciled us in a relationship to a holy God? Can I tell you about him? And for that beginning, the church began to grow and probably went from Colossae to Laodicea and Aeropolis in these three areas down there because people began to, to proclaim the message of Jesus. Don't forget the people that come in your life that frustrate you, the co worker, family member. Man, we are all, you and I are all around people who need to be hearing about Jesus. And I want to invite you let's not forget to proclaim the message of Jesus. So you've been reconciled to a holy God because Jesus is the Savior of this new community called the church. And it's all because of uh, the resurrection, the incarnation, and the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm done. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to sing, and then we are going to celebrate who Jesus is this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the incredible privilege that we have to be a part of your body of Christ. And Father, we thank you for this, this wonderful teaching from your word that reminds us of who you are and what you've done for us. Father, I thank you that I have the privilege of sharing this morning with my family members and friends, and I pray your special blessing upon them. Father, let us sing and celebrate your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.